0: Thanks to Bombfell for supporting Industry Focus. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, October 6th, and we're running through the week in device news I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by fool.com tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, what's going on?
1: It's been a busy couple of weeks. Everyone's coming out with new products.
0: Yeah, it's it's, al- it's almost like we're leading into the holiday season, and people are trying to build up some excitement and release some new products before people start spending for gifts.
1: I know, right? It's like <laughs> people buy stuff for the holidays.
0: <laughs> um, we are going to touch on uh, kind of an update on our Roku discussion from uh, earlier last month. And we're also going to touch on some Google product news. Uh, They showed off a ton of really flashy new stuff earlier this week. Um, But, Evan, let's start with Roku. We did a rundown on their S1 as soon as we got our hands on it, basically. Um, And we kind of ran through the standard, like, this is what we think of this business, these are the things to watch type episode that we love to do. But I figured now that the company is publicly traded um, and shares are, you know, kind of on the free market, we do a little follow-up and talk about um, how things have been going for them and what that valuation looks like now that we can get a sense of how the market feels about the company.
1: Absolutely, and, plus, and speaking of uh, product announcements, they also updated their entire product line last week. So they unveiled five new products. Nothing really huge. I mean, just kind of mostly updates and kind of incremental little you know, processor improvements, performance improvements. Uh, just kind of get ready for this holiday shopping season. Nothing game-changing on the hardware side. Uh, but just you know, something that they acknowledge that they did just refresh their, uh, their lineup.
0: And for folks that maybe didn't catch that show, um, just some background on the business. Roku is a company that makes devices that allow you to stream content on your TV. Uh, they sell their namesake devices typically between thirty and hundred dollars. That's their kind of sweet spot. Um, and they have all the various content providers like Netflix, um, like Amazon Prime, integrated as apps on their platform. Um, they also do some stuff on the smart TV side where they license out their brand. But, um, really, you can think of them as a device company that helps you stream stuff if you don't know them. Um, So, shares are available. Uh, they originally priced at $14 for the issuance. Uh, They've hit highs in the upper 20s, and they're now somewhere in the low 20s. So, we're looking at a valuation of roughly $2 billion for this company. Um, You look over at the last 12 months, and that puts them at five times sales, Evan, which seems a little steep for our hardware business.
1: Yeah, it is pretty steep. I mean, if you look at – that's the hard thing is because, you know, with a price-to-sales multiple of, of like four to five, you know, most of the time hardware-only companies generally trade for, you know, anywhere from one to two, maybe less than one in some cases, you know, one or two times sales. Whereas, you know, software and services companies can go anywhere much higher than that, you know, depending on what company you're talking about, but they can go much higher. Uh, and, you know, the one challenge is that Roku is kind of a pure play on streaming TV, and there aren't really any comparable peers, and so much of comp- you know, evaluation is really predicated on comparable analysis, and there really aren't any. Uh, so, that does make it a little challenging to kind of evaluate Roku if you think, you know, is this expensive or cheap? Because you want to compare it to, to peers, and there's not really any good comparisons. That being said, you know, I think a lot of it depends on where you think Roku can take this business from here. And, you know, certainly the, the narrative they're trying to, to really put together is that they're really moving more towards this platform business. They're really trying to be very aggressive on hardware, price very aggressively, sacrifice um, margins up front on the hardware in order to grow their installed base. So that's definitely what they're trying to do. And, you know, if you think that they can be successful with really building out this platform, that would warrant a higher valuation because then you start shifting more into the software and services and away from hardware.
0: Yeah, and those businesses are just far more scalable and they command much higher margins. Um, We've spent some time in the past talking about their platform business, but I think it's worth revisiting it because, long-term, if you like this company, that's the business that you really have to like. Because they've made it pretty clear, they they don't really mind that they're making very little money on their hardware. In fact, they're pretty okay with basically getting Roku's into as many living rooms as possible if it means building out that installed base and then being able to make money on the services side later. So, that platform business is basically the money that the company is making through advertising on their platform, so as people consume content, and then from subscription revenue shares with the content providers. But really, uh, Evan, you just wrote a piece about this, that's primarily advertising revenue.
1: Right. So, they get a 20% revenue share of subscription and a la carte transactions, so people buying individual movies or subscribing. Uh, They get a 30% share of video ad inventory, so channels that are free and ad-supported. Roku can choose to take up to 30 percent of the ad inventory they don't always do this especially for like the smaller channels when it doesn't really make a difference but for bigger channels certainly they, they do want to you know, monetize that usage and they, they get a little bit of money from the licensing deals that you mentioned with tv makers and they also get some money from you know those dedicated buttons on the remote you know they it, get a little bit of it's money not from much but know, they make the something right yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not it's not material, but, you know, so they collected it. Yeah, so the, the vast majority of this platform revenue is from ads, uh, about two-thirds of it. So, you know, if you're betting on this platform business, you're really betting that Roku could become an advertising company. So if you look at, you know, kind of breaking it down even further in terms of usage, in the first half of this year, they streamed 6.7 billion hours. Of that, 2.9 billion hours are about a little over 40% included advertising, right? So... And that ad-supported uh, viewership includes YouTube, uh, which is a pretty big channel, obviously. <laughs> and Roku gets nothing from YouTube. They get zero revenue from YouTube, which is a pretty big portion of that ad-supported um, viewership. And the flip side is, okay, so if, if about 40% is ads includes advertising, then 60% does not have ads, right? And we know that Netflix is about a third of all our stream, so Netflix is about a third of all of that non-ad uh, viewership and roku makes very little money from netflix they, they do make a little bit but the, it's not material and they don't really break it out further than that beyond saying it's not really significant so i mean there, it the ad side of the business like it, it doesn't really seem super promising to me because i mean if you want to invest in the advertising business there are much bigger much better advertising businesses out there like we've talked about before and you, you know you're really the market's pricing in really high hopes that they're going to be able to pull this off and you know they just launched the roku channel last month which offers a bunch of free content that roku will monetize directly through ads since it's their channel they'll get you know 100 of ad inventory but you know it's kind of like crackle you know that that service that sony owns which is mostly a bunch of older stuff that's just sitting around not doing anything so they figure you, know, you might as well monetize this through ads but it's not terribly engaging because a lot of this stuff is really old you know it's stuff like karate kid or you know legally blonde or some of the examples they mentioned in the press release and you know it's not really super engaging type of content
0: not exactly titles that are flying off the shelves <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um i will say if you look at a hardware company a pure play hardware company in a space that is fiercely competitive i think you have to like that they're focusing on the platform side of their business because that is maybe their best bet at staying relevant long-term. I've written some stuff about this in the past, and I know you have, too. But it can be really tough to make it as a hardware business, um, particularly when you're in a space where the upgrade cycles aren't really defined yet. You know, we don't know how often people are going to be buying new streaming devices. You know, as new, as new features like 4K streaming come out, and people actually have the TVs to support it, um, that might fight. that might force some of the upgrades. But, you know, I've owned a Chromecast for four years, and, and you know, I haven't had any need to upgrade. Um, so, so you look at that, and you're like, well, it kind of makes sense that they're going to focus on the platform side, particularly because it's higher margin. But um, when you need to kind of qualify that the ceiling might not be super high looking at their relationships with these content providers and, and really how much of those streaming hours they're really able to make money off of.
1: I definitely agree because yeah, hardware is just generally not a great business uh, to be in, and you know, like you and you know, I think you had a good point there, which is like in essence, the upgrade cycle for their hardware is kind of a derivative of TV upgrade cycles, which we've talked about in the past. They're really long. I mean, five to seven years on on average. And if you don't have a 4K TV, and then Roku comes out with a 4K player, you're not going to buy a 4K player unless you have a 4K TV. So it's kind of you know kind of limited there. And, I mean, I think you know in terms of the, you know, platform plays, like the best case scenario for Roku, like absolute best case scenario would be if they could create a platform that's differentiated with content that's exclusive to the platform and third-party channel creators are able to kind of build these large subscription bases with recurring revenue where Roku's getting that 20% cut, right? Like that would be the ideal situation. But the reality is that's not really what's happening, at least not to the scale or extent to where you feel really confident about this business. I mean, that is happening to some extent, but I think that the majority of usage is still dominated by things like Netflix and YouTube, and and and, and these ad these free ad-supported channels, which again, like I'm not really sold on on Roku's advertising business. I would be much more interested in it if it was much more of a, a platform play in terms of the subscription revenue sharing, but I, I don't believe that's that's really a driver here, which you know is unfortunate for the company.
0: So Evan, I think I might already know your answer to this, but I put out a note on Twitter. Uh, telling folks that we we're going to be talking about Roku this week and asking if people had any specific questions that they wanted us to hit. And I have a few here. This wor- this first one, uh, who's uh, from a loyal Fool, is Austin, not our guy behind the booth, but uh, <laughs> someone who's part of the Fool community. He asks, what has to happen for Roku to 5x or 10x in value? And then on the flip side, what would cause them to lose half their value? And of course, which one seems more likely to you? So <laughs> you want to un- <laughs> unpack that one a little bit?
1: I think, um, I mean, the valuation already is really stretched. I mean, the shares hit almost $28, or around twenty dollars in the first week of trading, and right now, like you mentioned, they're in kind of low 20s, you know, I haven't checked this morning, but you know, they're probably like 23, 24, and at that at four or five, even six times sales, there's a lot being priced in, and they really, they would really have to execute very well on, on this platform side. and. I have my doubts on their ability to do so at these valuation levels, so I think that there's more downside risk at these prices versus upside potential.
0: I do think Austin is thinking about this in totally the right way. You know, you want to be able to kind of set your expectations for what a stock is capable of doing, and, you know, you look at these multiples he's talking about of a 5X or 10X in some period of time, you know, that would take them to a 10 or possibly $20 billion company, right? Um, Which sounds
1: insane for a company (laughs) like
0: (laughs) this, Yeah, and, and once you put it in those terms, it's a lot easier to get a sense of like, wow, like for them to really become a multi-bagger, a lot of things have to go right. Um, if you are trying to build the case for something like that happening, I'm going to point to a couple of the levers that Roku identified in its S1. So the big things for them are you know, their ability to grow active accounts, so that's more people owning Roku devices, um, growing hours streamed, which is basically you know, their proxy for engagement. The more that people are using it, the more that metric's going to go up. And then grow uh, average revenue per user or ARPU, and you know that's basically saying we're going to better monetize every user that's on the platform, and that really comes down to them making their advertising more compelling and and kind of more interesting to people with ad spend budgets. Um, you look at those three, and I think growing active accounts is probably the easiest way to meaningfully move them um, as a company. Uh, if you want to look at the numbers here. About a year ago, midway through the summer of 2016, they had about 10 million active accounts. Now, a year later, they're somewhere in the 15 million range. So there's definitely been growth there, but for them to get to a 5X or 10X, they would need to continue to multiply that at a pretty big rate. I think they'd need to double or triple the active accounts. And I look at the number of players in the streaming space, and even if they're able to get some really good worldwide traction, that's going to be super hard for them to do.
1: Right, and, and even if they do, they also have to simultaneously grow the platform business, you know, because they, you know, as far as the way they calculate ARPU, they basically just take their platform revenue over the past 12 months and divide that out. Uh, and again, as, as we've been talking about, that platform revenue is all based on, is mostly based on advertising. So they have to, you know, grow active accounts while they're executing on the platform front, which is primarily just getting better at ads. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's, Yeah, in order, in terms of these these specific metrics that they have to hit, it's they have to pull pull off flawless execution across all three of these metrics going forward to to really have any possibility of upside from here. I think at least upside that's like justified. Who knows what the market's gonna do, but yeah.
0: Yeah, the one thing that I do think is interesting for them on the ad side. Um, I I am generally bearish on this company and would take the 50% haircut on where they currently are over the five x strongly Austin. So so that, that's where I stand on this. Um but with their ad business, I do see some interesting possibilities with basically taking what has been a very popular format for ad spend budgets, you know, the, the video ads that people are used to experiencing with cable and then being able to layer in some digital tracking on that because they're a digital platform. I think there's okay, something there's a
1: big shift secularly, you know, going from T V ad spending to digital streaming.
0: So you know they, they definitely have that going for them. Yeah. And and I think that if you can get some really great analytics and show that there's some ROI there, you might be able to convince people because that's been that's been what really worked for Google and Facebook. That's why they command like 50% of digital ad spend together. Um, that said, you know, when you get into the digital ad spend space, that's who you're competing with. And so, you know, for you to have uh, a really great value proposition to advertisers, you need to prove that money's better spent there. And uh, that's a tough sell, frankly. And,
1: and that's kind of what I'm getting at too, which is like, when it comes to actually executing on, on an ad business, there's all these little really intricate things that Roku doesn't have a lot of experience with. You know, we talk about targeting, we talk about engagement, measurement, analytics, and you know, and at the same time, Roku has offers. You know, users can opt out through their privacy policies policies through to really kind of not share this data with them if users don't want them to. So you know, it, you know, we, we say oh they have to go that ad business, but yeah, if you kind of boil down into like what they actually have to do to actually execute these aren't things that Roku is really good at compared to you know the Googles and the Facebooks that are, that are very good at this kind of stuff. So that's kind of why I have my doubts about them being able to really, really grow the iBusiness because they have to really put together all these core competencies that they don't currently have.
0: And that answer there, Evan, kind of touches on a question that we got from another listener. It's either Steven or Stefan. Sorry if I mispronounce it. But he basically asks, with Google, Amazon, and Apple in the space, can Roku survive? And I think what he's talking about there is a little bit more on the hardware side and then being able to maintain a fairly large active user base and have people continuing to buy Roku's, you know, as they upgrade their devices and get that next streaming device. What are your thoughts on that?
1: It kind of depends on like, what people are using these for. I mean, if people are buying Roku's just to stream Netflix and YouTube, that's not good for Roku. That particularly if they're selling hardware at, you know, minimal margins and basically being really aggressive just to go active accounts in the install base, but if all those people or just doing stuff that, like Netflix, YouTube, or basically stuff that you can do on any device these you know, these days, like on your phone or your tablet or your PC. You can do these things all from any device. And then if that's you know where this goes, then Roku essentially gets relegated to this commoditized hardware that, as we've just t- touched on, is not a good business to be in. And you know, as far as competing with them on the platform front, I don't think they they have a really good chance in terms of you know. Put yourself in the shoes of like a content creator if you wanted to to build out a channel for yourself I mean you don't put your stuff exclusively on Roku You you focus on the big platforms and maybe on the side you also put on Roku But I mean on on the hardware side, I don't think it looks great if people are just using it for You know Netflix or YouTube and I don't really think there's a lot of differentiated content on Roku's platform So I, I do think they're facing an uphill battle against some very big very competent rich companies.
0: We're going to touch on some of the super exciting products that one of those big tech companies unveiled earlier this week, Google. But before we get over to the back half of the show, I just want to give a shout out over to Bombfell. Uh, Thanks for them for supporting the show. Um, Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps get the right clothes for you. It's personalized just for you. Once you sign up online and complete a simple questionnaire, you're matched one-on-one with a dedicated personal stylist who handpicks every piece. Your stylist will email you a preview of their selections, after which you'll have 48 hours to make any changes or cancel. You're totally in control. Afterwards, Bombfell will ship you the selected clothes, and you'll have seven days to decide and pay for only what you want to keep. Send the rest back with free shipping both ways. Of course, it's totally flexible. You can receive clothes every one, two, or three months. and You can pause or cancel at any time. Clothing is shipped straight to your door. No need to spend hours shopping at the store. We actually tried out Bombfell a few months back, and frankly, I was pretty blown away. Um, I hate shopping for jeans. I, I tend to like the more modern tapered cut, and I'm not the skinniest guy. So anytime I go to the store, I always wind up finding you know like five, ten pairs that I like, trying them on. None of them fit the way I want them to. But when I put all my info into the Bombfell questionnaire, I was thinking to myself, with all that in mind, there's no way that jeans fit me right. There's no way they're going to be able to pull this off and send me stuff that fits without even looking at me. I was totally wrong. Um, the pair they sent me fits like a glove. They've become my favorite pair of jeans. I'm actually wearing them in the studio right now. Um, they do a great job of kind of understanding your body, understanding the cut of clothes you're looking for, and really kind of pairing you up nicely. We have a special offer just for listeners of the show. You can get $25 off your first purchase. Just go to bombfell.com/fool. That's b-o-m-b-f-e-l-l.com/fool. Again, that's bombfell.com/fool for $25 off your first purchase. All right, so Evan. We teased that there are some major tech players in the streaming space. Um, that is not all that Google has been up to, though. They showed off a ton of super exciting consumer devices earlier this week. What really stood out to you?
1: Yeah, so they, they unveiled a bunch of stuff. I mean,
0: we, we knew a new Pixel
1: phone was coming. Uh, so now there's the Pixel 2 and Pixel 2 XL, <laughs> which costs 650 and 850 respectively. Uh, you know, So new flagship phones that are going to offer pure Android experience. Uh, again, made by Google um, and you know, contract manufactured by HTC and LG. They also showed off Pixel Books, which is a you know, really high-end Chromebook, and this time they're also making their own stylus, which they're calling the Pixel Pen. So they're kind of jumping into the stylus game, kind of like Apple and Microsoft. Uh, the Google Home family is getting pretty interesting. They're expanding that lineup, moving both up-market and down-market with the Home Max and Home Mini, respectively. Um, the Mini is kind of like a... An Echo Dot, it's like a small $50 device that you can put anywhere in your house and you have access to Google Assistant and their smart home features. Then the Google Max is this really high-end speaker with high fidelity audio, gonna cost $400, so it's gonna compete directly with Apple's HomePod, which comes out in December. They also unveiled the Eclipse camera, which is the small little camera that you're supposed to put around your house that will recognize when to take pictures on its own using AI. Uh, as opposed to, you, know, you can manually tell it to take a picture, but the idea is that you leave it there and to kind of capture those moments that you normally miss, because normally if you want to capture something, you have to take your phone out of your pocket and by then you might miss something your kid's doing, your pet's doing, uh, which is who Google is positioning this device for. And they're also jumping into uh, wireless earbuds directly with Pixel Buds, uh, which are tethered, you know, have a little neck tether, but they're not wired to your phone. Uh, which is pretty interesting, and then they're you know so they're looking to compete with Apple AirPods even priced at the same you know $159 price point uh, helps you have Google Assistant right in your ear, kind of like how AirPods let you have Siri in your ear. So you know, they're they're getting really big into the hardware side of it, uh, which is not surprising since they just announced a big $1.1 billion acquisition of HTC's uh, Pixel engineering team
0: you know, a few weeks back. So
1: going forward it's it's i mean it's very obvious that they're they're making a really big bet on hardware and they're not going to stop anytime soon
0: so there is a ton to sift through there we've got smartphone stuff we have uh productivity tablet stuff we have smart home stuff we have uh we have camera (laughs) and we have headphones um looking at the kind of investing takeaways from what we saw with these products um, it sounds to me like the smartphone is is a nice product for Android users from what I understand It has a ridiculous camera, but I don't know that it's really gonna stack up to a lot of the smartphones out there And I don't I certainly don't think it's something that's gonna steal like any market share from Apple or anything like that
1: I think the tough thing is like I mean th- these look like really good phones but the price points that Google is competing at which are similar to last year, but you know Google is, is really getting into the premium space and when you're competing against companies like Apple and Samsung, I mean, it, it's really tough to really justify such high you know, end prices. Like if they had just been a little bit more aggressive, I think the, they would have had a better value proposition. But, you know, the Pixel 2 looks pretty solid at 650, but the Pixel 2 XL, I think is, is a really stretched comparison because at that price point, you're going up against the iPhone 8 plus and the Galaxy Note 8. And it doesn't really look very competitive compared to those devices. And I mean, this, the Pixel two XL, if you get the storage upgrade too, you're talking about nine hundred and fifty dollars, which is almost like an iPhone ten. You know, it's it's really tough to really justify that that comparison. Whereas those other phones have much better specs, have much better features. You know, for example, the dual camera system on the on the eight plus is a really good camera. And, you know, these cameras that Google is using are, are you know pretty good, but it's just it's just not quite there in terms of, you know, you know, if you stack these products up side by side, it, it doesn't look very better at these prices. So I think it's it's a little tough to say, but you know, Pixel has never been about Google becoming some volume leader in the smartphone market. It's really about, you know, kind of like an old Nexus program putting out a really great, great example of what an amazing Android phone can be and hoping that your third party OEMs get on board and kind of produce comparably good hardware.
0: So not something that's going to be necessarily super disruptive in the smartphone space. Um, one of the products that they did reveal that I think seemed to scare investors a little bit was the Clips camera. Um, it seemed like uh, it kind of got GoPro on its heels a little bit and definitely scared some folks. Uh, GoPro wound up taking a hit earlier this week. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so it's funny because as soon as GoPro went public a few years back, there was always talk about mainstream adoption. You know, when Maybe that will be this big driver for unit sales. Everyone's going to go out and go, buy GoPro. And I never really bought that narrative because no one needs a $400 rugged action camera to take a picture of what they're eating for lunch and put it on Facebook. Like it doesn't really make sense. Like why would you go out and buy this super expensive thing? And and you know GoPro really tried to push this, and you know they kind of tried to rebrand themselves as a storytelling company and pivoted their marketing to kind of say, oh, you can you can use these devices for for everyday activities. But the that's all that's about all they did. They never actually made a product that was properly positioned for that use case no you don't need a a rugged action camera that can survive a 500 foot fall off a cliff if you're just wanting to record your kid riding a bike you know what i mean like it doesn't like there's a big disconnect between how this product is positioned with the features and the pricing compared to what they were hoping for mainstream adoption and and google is now doing exactly what they should have done years ago with clips which is basically just making these small little cameras that you can set up on your house to, to capture these kind of everyday moments that don't require ridiculously high-end, you know, hardware that can withstand a beating. And you know, I think that's why GoPro you know, has kind of disappointed because, you know, they, I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, GoPro is very successful within their niche of extreme sports enthusiasts that really need action cameras. But there was a big disconnect in evaluation because investors initially were pricing in these expectations that they would get to this mainstream adoption phase but they never really tried to do that in terms of the product side. And that's what I think is scaring investors down why the GoPro shares have taken a hit. I mean, on the flip side is that parts of this Eclipse camera sound a little invasive and a little creepy, to be honest, because what it does is it sits in, you know, Google wants you to put this thing in in your house. You're not supposed to actually interact with this very much manually. I mean, you can tell it to take a picture, but the idea is you leave it alone and the AI Google Assistant will recognize your face, it will learn your face, it will learn your kids' faces, your family's faces, and the camera itself decides when to start recording based on what it's seeing. So you're kind of trusting that this thing will be able to to recognize a moment that's worth capturing, and it will capture like a seven second clip and you can keep it as a video, you can take a screenshot or you know one specific frame, and you just kind of leave it there, and the idea is that it, it captures those moments that you would otherwise miss, you're not behind the camera; you're actually in the shot. Um, and Google is very cognizant that this might freak people out in terms of privacy concern. So you know they're very upfront that this thing does not have a microphone; it's not listening to you. And all of this processing is done locally; all the store everything is stored locally. Nothing is being sent to the cloud or to Google, so that they're not monitoring you or anything like <laughs> that. But, um, you know, so they you know, they're, they're kind of aware that you know, this might weird people out, but that's how they're positioning it and. It just seems like this is what GoPro should have done, like, two years ago.
0: And this is another instance of technology kind of coming into people's homes in uh, in maybe a more invasive way, kind of depending on how you look at it. Uh, another segment where that is particularly true is the smart home products. And we see a lot of people playing in this space. I know this is something that you've particularly tuned into recently. Um, you want to just talk about how what they've unveiled kind of stacks up against what's already in that space and, and any changes that you see there?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's really exciting actually what they're doing because they're they kinda of taking Amazon's playbook. So Amazon has been extremely aggressive, particularly this year. I mean they've come out with, you know, four or five different new Echo products that span a, a wide range of prices. They're all really affordable and the whole idea is to allow you to bring Alexa to any room in your house with a small, low cost device or if you want, you know, kind of a more expensive, more full featured device. And that's what Google Mini is about. It's it's big ba- it's basically just like an echo dot it's 50 bucks you c- you cannot plug a speaker into it like you can the echo dot but other than that it's a small device that's intended to be placed around the house and you know because the, the smart home technology space is, you know, it's all about having access points to be able to control your smart home with your you know with your voice commands and you want to have a lot of those in your house so you don't have to worry about you know wh- is this device near enough to hear me if they're just everywhere then you can just come, you know confidently speak your house wherever you are and it'll it'll work and you know that's kind of i, I think that's the problem with apple strategy at least right now and i mean who knows what Apple's going to do in the future but at this point they just have one device coming out that's 350 dollars it doesn't have a, as many smart home integrations uh, in in part because apple puts these really strict hardware requirements used to put these really strict hardware requirements on people that want to be part of its home kit platform and Th- these requirements that are basically why manufacturers have not been getting on board with HomeKit over the past three years—they've only now started to loosen these hardware requirements, and now we're starting to see more manufacturers come on board. So hopefully, Apple will get some get something going, but they're still really far behind, and no one, people aren't going to buy five HomePods <laughs> <laughs> to go put all over your house, like in your bathroom, in your kitchen, because that's like thousands of dollars <laughs> at 350 bucks each. And so I think Apple is kind of missing out right now in this opportunity because ideally Apple should also create kind of more low-cost devices so you can add Siri to any room. You know, low-cost for Apple would still probably be a premium compared to, you know, Home Mini or Echo Dot, but something cheaper than 350 They need to do something if they actually want to make a dent in the smart home space. So I think it is pretty interesting because Google is now putting more – Google coming out with Mini and Max really puts more pressure on Apple. To, to kind of move down and, and offer something more affordable at the same time that Google is saying, you know, you know, maybe there is a market for high end speakers that are three fifty or $400 that can also do the smart home stuff.
0: Yeah. I think dropping $1,500, $2,000 to outfit your home with all of the Apple products is essentially like a home renovation, you know, at that cost, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know how many people are going to be too keen on that. Um, one... You don't need like high fidelity audio.
1: If, if all you want is just, if you, you know for example if you just wanted to have siri in your bedroom to be able to control your smart home you didn't need high fidelity audio in your room or like a bathroom or an office you know whatever it is like you don't need that kind of audio everywhere but you might want siri everywhere
0: right yeah yeah you the whole point is that it makes things easier right so i can understand the multiple access points um one thing that they showed off that you know i think the Investing takeaways a little bit tougher to, to to kind of shoehorn in, but I just thought from a device perspective, this was so darn cool. Was looking at what they were doing with the Pixel Buds and the feature of live translation being built into the headphones. That is so futuristic, so cool. I, I don't know what's going to happen with it or what adoption is going to look like, but that is like that is like science fiction type technology. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, the, the Pixel Buds were, were pretty cool, and I don't think anyone really saw them coming. So you know, I mean, them getting the wireless headphones. I mean. I've never really used, used Apple's AirPods, but everyone that uses the AirPods loves them and like can't stop talking about them. I, I think that they're prone they're so small I feel like I would just lose them immediately. So it's kind of nice that Google has a tether between the two of them, so it makes them less likely to lose them. But I think the the more important thing is is really just about Google Assistant versus Siri, because one of the big features is bringing these assistants right into your ear to, for the convenience of so always having it available. And it's pretty common knowledge that Siri is just not that great, even though Apple was like the first mover with Siri. They've really dropped the ball in terms of keeping Siri competitive as a virtual assistant in AI. And Google Assistant is just hands down much better than Siri. So, you know, being able to have, if that's the whole kind of point of this product, is to have the assistant AI in your ear and accessible anytime, then I think pixel belts are pretty compelling. They have the same price point. They're pretty cleverly designed to have this little loop that can adapt to your ear to make it fit better, uh, which is something that Apple doesn't do. And you know, that what feature you're talking about was really pretty cool. Like it it can live translate into your ear if someone's speaking a foreign language and it, it supports up to forty languages at this point. And then, you know, basically someone talks into your phone, your phone translates it and then Google Assistant feeds it into your ear. You talked into the Pixel Buzz in your language it feeds it back into your phone and then it displays the translation to who you're talking to in, in that other language. So, so it is pretty cool, but you know, someone, uh, someone else pointed out online that, you know, even today you can kind of type translations into your phone and just kind of pass your phone back and forth. So the incremental improvement is kind of, you know, arguable. I mean, it's, I mean, you can already do something pretty similar by just passing a phone back and forth. It sounds awesome. And the demonstration was really cool. But I don't know how appealing this is to most mainstream consumers. They don't, you know, for example, if they don't travel internationally much, then this, it might not be a, a huge use case. But, I mean, the, the demonstration and the and the concept is really pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, I'm going to file that one, like, just in the this is really neat category. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what the business case is going to be for it. I, have, I don't know what adoption is going to look like for it. But it's just really cool that we've gotten to that point with technology. One other thing I want to hit with Google's product releases is you look at them jumping in with wireless headphones, and you look at some of the design decisions that they made with their smartphones, deciding to not have a headphone jack, for example, something that Apple decided to do, uh, there was a lot of blowback for it, and they've stuck with it. Um, it just signals to me that, one, that was probably the right decision by Apple, and two, um, the future for a lot of these consumer device companies is going to be wireless, and they're going to be relying more and more on you know wireless charging formats, wireless listening formats. Uh, that technology is just going to get bigger and bigger.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and it's just funny because Apple or Google was mocking Apple last year for ditching the headphone jack. And of course, this year, everyone dishes that (laughs) because everyone, you know, because Apple pushes things forward more aggressively than any other company, uh, particularly when it comes to shifting away from old technologies. Like, Like hands down, Apple is the most aggressive across the board. And there's dozens of examples over the decades of them doing this. And you're starting with, like, the floppy drive, you know, back in, in many, many, years ago. I mean, they are the ones that, you know, if they think something needs to die, they will, like, put their full weight behind killing some old standard. And then once they do that, they get a bunch of crap about it and a lot of criticism. But then everyone else just jumps on board, and then they, the end result is that they do push us
0: forward. Yeah, and three years later, everyone's like, remember when Apple did that? How brilliant that was? <laughs>
1: Even though we gave them so much hard time when they did it. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, such is the life of being an innovator and dealing with the 24-hour news cycle. Um, Evan, anything else before I let you go? We did a huge rundown on device stuff.
1: I mean, I think that you know, kind of more bigger picture when it comes to Google and this hardware stuff is, I, I do think it will be interesting to see because I mean, right now they they aggregate all their hardware into other revenue, and the more that the more they emphasize growing their hardware business and kind of operations, I think eventually. Investors might want to know, hey, are you going to break this out and give us more more kind of granular disclosures? Because if, if you're saying this business is so important and you're investing this heavily and coming out with this many products, and you know they have a Google online Google store that's just adding more and more products every year, it, there's a case to be made that you know you should start breaking this out, giving investors more detail in terms of both you know revenue, maybe operating income, maybe gross margin, you know just something, you know give us some more information. Because if you want investors to focus on this hardware business, you got to get more, more data and more actual uh, detail about how this business is doing. So that's something to keep an eye out for going forward. Uh, whether or not they'll actually start disclosing more information, that's up to them. But uh, I, I think that they should if they really think that this hardware business is going to be that important. Yeah.
0: Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. Got any questions or feedback for us, you can always shoot us an email at pool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff subscribe on itunes or check out the fool's family of shows over at Pool.com slash podcasts as always people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and the motley fool may have formal recommendations for or against stock mentioned so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear thanks to heather horton for subbing in behind the glass today for evan new i'm dylan lewis thanks for listening